decoded. Welcome to this episode of Founder Tech Decoded. I'm delighted to continue with Series 4 talking to Alison McMurtry. Alison's story around Exit is interesting for multiple reasons and facets. One, she has a um, female founder's story and experience that honestly shocked me when we first talked, which I would love to hear more about and explore. But also because um, when we think of exits, we think of sales of companies, whereas actually Alison orientates more around um, a transference or sale of IP. Um, she also has distinct views on why uh, VCs don't uh, invest in product. They prefer SaaS and e-commerce marketplaces rather than product, where an often product is the most valuable solution. And in her own consultancy, I done, she uh, focuses on mindset and um, founders um, getting their mindset mindset right from the get-go, so they can going forward build from solid foundations. So, Alison, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, and uh, yes, how are you doing? I have absolute pleasure to come and talk about something that I am super, super passionate about and love to talk about. So really nice to have someone to listen to me for a change. <laughs> um, where, where should we start? We could start with the female founder. Do you just want to give us your, your the arc of your founder's journey? I think it's probably the easiest way to do this um, is just to hear however you would like to tell it. Um, you know, you've got a few minutes, you can really go into it however you would like to portray that story would be great. Yeah, so really interesting um, founder's journey. I left a, a executive position, Fortune 500 company in um, mid-pandemic, right at the start of the pandemic, which was a conscious decision. And I was, my plan was to found Aiden Consulting and be a a consulting organization form an agency later on down the road and help businesses grow and scale. And I moved to Ireland in the middle of that and didn't know anyone here and was joining different networking groups. And I kept meeting this other lady. And it was funny, we were like, it would become a running joke. I'd be on one call and there she would be, pop up and then we'd have another call and there she would be and she'd pop up. So we decided to have coffee one day, a virtual coffee. And she told me she'd started this startup in cybersecurity and it sounded really interesting and blah, blah, blah. And that was it, you know? And then some, we kept in touch with a lot of similar things in common, knew a lot of the same people. And then she reached out to me one day looking for some advice because she was looking for a co-founder. And so I was like, right, okay, let me, you know, do your pitch to me. Let, what are you thinking about? Where are you looking? And we talked it through. I gave her some feedback. Da 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 da. And then a few, and that was it. Okay. And then a few days later, she was like, Alison, I really need to talk to you. It will only take ten minutes. And I was like, right, okay, I'm in the middle. Three of Three hours later. Ten, ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she was like. She, she, she was like, I'm just going to show you these slides. And I'm like, right, okay. So then she put them up and it was like a sales pitch. And I was like, okay. And I was like, that's really good because you know exactly who you want as a co-founder. So it was a sales pitch of what she was looking for. Right. 
And I was like racking my brains because, you know, sometimes we are beyond stupid when it comes to these things that are right in front of you. <laughs> and she's like, huh, next slide. It was a picture of me that she'd screen grabbed. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, my God, I am mortified. <laughs> and, you know, but it was it, for me, it was it was not my plan to do something like this, to join a startup in a true sense of a startup. But it was such a great it just made such sense to me it was a no-brainer and we hadn't met we had only met virtually and it was another six months into our co-founding journey that we actually met in person for the first time hold on so just speaking you became you agreed to become co-founders it was yep. all virtual and yep. then six months later you meet yes <laughs> okay and well, what was that like when you met? Was it was it was it was it resonant? Was it with each other? Did you get did you get on, or were you like was it a bit sort of like going on a date like for the first time? No, it was it was fab. You know, I was like, oh my goodness, you're taller than I thought, and right. she's like, oh, you're shorter than I thought, and I am short. So, but and that was and it was just a laugh, you know. But it was it was bizarre that we hadn't been together. But she lived in, in one side of the country and I lived like two and a half hours away. So it wasn't practical or even allowed at the time because this was still when the pandemic was on. So, yeah, we just decided we made a conscious decision that it was going to be a remote company. Um, and that was it. And we, we just made it work. Constant check ins. Um, we did, we, you know, set up a drive with shared folders. We, we knew roles and responsibilities, you know, we knew debt, we shared deadlines. So we knew exactly where, what we were doing and when it was expected. And, you know, the relationship worked. If you, if you find that right person, it, it can work. Can I just interject here? Because what's interesting about this is that a lot of the what we're trying to debunk is the myths that aren't useful. And one of the myths is your co-founder is this is electric chemistry, this alignment, you know, almost like, you know, Myers-Briggs matching, all that. And and and, and what you're saying is it was, I don't mean opportunistic in a, in a cheap way. I don't mean, I mean, the, the, the opportunity presented itself to you almost like someone offering you a job. I know it wasn't a job. It, there's, it's a different relation. When you actually could evaluate it on its own terms and go, yeah, I can add to that. I, we can build it. And then together, two people who hadn't known each other, then through building structure, mindset, and sharing, you know, comms and process together, were able to function successfully. Is that a correct portrayal? Yeah, I think it, I think it definitely is. It's, for me, it was, is this someone I can work with? Yes or no? Is it something that I can believe in? Is, it, is there a business here? yes or no and then for me it was okay let's let's give it a go and i have to say you know with your with respect to your myths there that you mentioned since exiting and leaving that that startup this almost exactly the same thing has happened again where i was approached in kind of a job interview style aspect to to join a, another startup as co-founder and ceo Okay, we'll get we'll, we'll get to that. Let's just talk about the exit being an IP-driven exit of that business. So we've heard the origin of it. Let's talk, and then how, how many years did that take? And then talk about that process. 
Yeah, so we were we were really working together. Now the the business itself had was probably two years, maybe just over two years. I'd been part of it for eighteen months, and we were not revenue generating. We did manage to secure some um, uh, investment, some pre seed investment, and we were going down that journey. Um, we'd gone through the due diligence process, but I think important to highlight, we had not signed yet, which made the exit a little bit easier for us. Um, so we had the commitment of funds and things, and that was great. And we'd gone through that whole process of raising, um, which is a hard process. But then two years without any inflow of cash is very, very difficult when you have families and mortgages or rent and things to pay. And unfortunately, my co-founder was just not in a position to be able to continue on the journey, not earning, and made a really tough life decision, which was to take a full-time job. Yeah, and, and you know, that's, that's, a, that's a really tough decision for them to, you know, it's like letting go of, a, of your baby that you've lived in for two years and then to step away from it. I wasn't in a position to take it over because I'm not the cybersecurity expert. She was. Um, and so that's when we decided to exit and to, to you know, end the business. But we had done a lot of work in the background, you know, looking at training materials, policies, best practices. And, there, you know, people, our advisors kept telling us there's a value there. There's a value there. And that became our IP. So the, the 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 way you had documented the business and the insight in that became the value rather than the product itself. Yes, because the the product was still in the build stage. So yeah. all we had was uh, the architecture of what it was going to look yeah. like. We didn't. We had a website, but the back end was manual. You so know. How, so how did you go about valuing that IP? That's 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 that was that was hard, right? And it was really about is there we appreciated there was a value, but to whom? Right? Yeah. And so we started we didn't know the value. We started thinking about, you know, how much time has it been has it taken to create this? And added in a little bit for um, brand equity, as in the people that are in the videos and that created the videos, they have uh, notoriety in the, the, the sphere of cybersecurity. And that's worth something. And so that's how we kind of came up with, you know, a price for it. And then we just kind of put it out into the universe. And it was as random as that you know, just started talking to people and mentioning it. And that's that's how it came about. And, and, and to facilitate the transaction, was it just simply a legal transference of IP yep. and that was it? There was no earn out clauses or anything. They just bought it no. off you. And and so within a, within 18 months of this having this person pitched to you, you, you have an exit, but in, an, in, in, a, in, a, in a different kind of exit that then I assume was still... I guess profitable, it not maybe not the right word. That still gave you some cushions, some funds to then look at the future. Was that was that yep. correct? Yep, absolutely. And that's exactly 
what it is. Yeah. And then, so there, can we then go into what you shared with me when we first talked about then being a female founder? Is that with that capital in the bank? Like, what's what's the, the next step of that journey? Um, you know, post that exit. Um, post that exit for me as an individual. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. what did you do? Like, did you, you know, not not took some time off and play golf. I don't, I don't know if you, <laughs> you played golf. But you know what I mean? Like, when you started with, with that capital, it would have given you new agency and new opportunities. How quickly did you start thinking, okay, I want to do something with that? And then when you went, you know, can you talk about that next stage of the journey? Well, you know, the, I, you know, I never... I had found it before that had before I joined the the startup. I had founded my own, you know, uh, consultancy, this and is I Iden. always, yeah, I yeah. I didn't consult. I was always there in the background, and I had been very clear from the get go because I am not risk adverse. I I like a bit of risk, but like a lot of other females, and this is you know quite a strong trait within female founders and females in general, I take calculated risks. And so I wasn't going to go 100% all in. I always had a back burner of some income and some presence yeah. as a consultancy. And so when, you know, when it all finished in the startup, I was like, okay, I, I'm going back to this. This was my passion that, you know, I'm very driven to support SMEs to grow and develop and, you know, develop the economy, create more jobs. So I, I will focus on this. And at the same time, I something that I had wanted to do for quite a while, but not really sure how to do it and certainly didn't have the time to focus on it was angel investing. And so that's when I started to get into a little bit of angel investing as well as really reinforcing and focusing on my consultancy, Aiden Consulting. And did you do angel investing uh, in sort of any like uh, female founder networks or any other syndicates? Like, how did you position yourself as a loan investor? How, how did you position that? I think to go it alone straight out off the bat is is heavy. I think just from the legal documentation, the the due diligence that you need to do by yourself, that's that's a lot of it's a lot a lot of work. There needs to be a machine behind that, and um, then that's my opinion. Some people do it, but they would have more experience than I have. So I joined um, a couple of syndicates, and I just put it out there that you know, I was I was interested. I wasn't focusing specifically on female founders. I'm open to male founders and people of, of different genders uh, or non-binary. It really doesn't matter. Sure. What I focus on is the product and is this a viable business? And, and especially if there's something impact-driven or sustainability, that's, that's kind of my area. But it was really because syndicate is important because of the amount of work the due diligence process takes and i knew that so i did go in with my eyes open okay so i think that is a good moment um to jump to the switch deck uh, for people who are listening yeah. for the first time um to this or who don't know what that is the switch deck is um the synthesis 
um, that we of, of the first three um, series of Founder Tech Decoded, the podcast, and it represents the 10 key shifts in early stage venture that we believe help further align exceptional founders and investors. And when I say we believe, it's, it's it, let's say this, from all the conversations, trying to get that into almost like a counterpart to a pitch deck to kind of explore what the new venture ecosystem might look like and taking real founder journeys, just like we've just heard with Alison, and kind of trying to map them and overlay onto the switch deck to bring it to life. So we'll walk through, um, and this is going to be the, the case for all, uh, everything in this series, we'll walk through the 10 insights. Um, Alison, obviously some we can just fly through because they may not be relevant, um, and some we can delve into for a lot more time because they may be super interesting and may, may open things up. So um, by all means, if it's kind of not relevant or not, you know, we can we can jump through it. Um, but equally, if there's something that like, you know takes five ten minutes to explore, that's all good too. You know, we don't we don't we, we don't have to kind of uh, take them one by one at the same pace. So the, the the first one, which I think we kind of got to in the conversation, is it's this it's this supposition that venture is at a crossroads that that actually if you look at venture properly it's this legacy industry of 30 40 years with legacy tools legacy approaches it's very capital like london centric it's very white male centric most of the people have come from kind of finance backgrounds still rather than me founders themselves um, in general terms and it has been reluctant to kind of adopt and integrate new technologies and approaches and thinking in a way that it wouldn't do if it was going into another sector that was looking to broadly disrupt um, and that there are these sort of it's a very inefficient um, experience for uh, consistently for early stage founders and investors they you started to allude to those things and yet those things just seem to be accepted for some reason mm -hmm. even the, the nine out of ten startups fail which is a you know a high degree of failure obviously there's going to be failure in early stage companies you know that that's the nature of of, of that risk and, and let's explore your appetite for risk i think in a couple of insights time but no one's ever kind of questioned why that may be maybe that's because the ecosystem isn't functioning properly and then the setup is obviously which we'll get to is the founder tech can help innovate that and kind of unlock a new ecosystem so do you buy into that premise that there we are at this kind of crossroads and if so what's your experience of that i i hope we are at a crossroads i really hope there is change because what we have now, I think, is, is, is really biased to who you know, what your name is, and what school you've been to. And I think, you know, you can see that with, you know, the WeWork fiasco, you can yeah. see it with FTX, you can see it with a lot of, a lot of the things happening over in the US right now. Yeah. Um, and I think that that I think those are the big ones, you know, that, you know, uh, they make the news. It just makes me think about all the ones that didn't make the news. Yeah. And I think that there is a problem here when, when you start to see funds opening up for specific demographics, then you have a problem overall. Do you want to unpack that, what you mean by specific demographics? I think I know what you mean, but do you just want to unpack that? So you, you now you see over the last maybe two years, two, three years, you see a lot of new funds opening up um, specifically for Latinos or Latinx. Right. You see them specifically for um, people of color. 
yeah. or specifically for females, right? And there's there's a big long list. You can Google them. There's there's they're everywhere. Yeah. And I think that as soon as you start compartmentalizing and having funds specifically looking for the, that type of founder and that type of startup, that to me is a signal that the system is broken because you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have to do that if it was working. That's really interesting. So if it was functioning properly, then you'd get the diversity and the impact and everything. Because, I mean, it comes back to something we say, uh, it's backing the right founder, fixing the right problem at the right time in the right way. That that immediately orientates you better, you know, yes. a, which is what you're saying, right? If you operate yep. from that starting point, you're going to attract the best people wherever they are. It doesn't matter yep. if they're, you know, um, someone who's Asian in a, a remote town in Scotland, you know, yep. If they're fixing something in 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 uh, healthcare because they have this unique insight into it, they should be able to find a line capital that wants to back that whoever's fixing that problem wherever they are. That's yeah. that, that's my. I mean, yeah, I, I mean that's a big passion of mine. I think that's totally right. And if we can think like that, we we kind of grab everything anyway. Everything gets included in the right way anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. That's the super. It's super interesting. I don't think many people understand it in in quite in that way because they are wired towards their biases, um, yeah. which is which is yeah interesting. Let's 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 flow that into the second insight, which is this idea of quality deal flow is starting pre product. And I know this is one of your um your 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 lenses on this is that the capital venture capital doesn't like product driven companies which is weird if you think about the term product market fit <laughs> the word product <laughs> is baked into it i was thinking about that earlier it's like baked in but you're saying that actually they don't like product because it's very hard to to sort of um, measure early on and it takes a longer development times higher degree of innovation higher degree of insight which kind of feeds into this 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 idea this idea uh, in a different way which is that there's this fundraising chasm that if you are constantly trying to look for SaaS-based products in your deal funnel via pitch decks, there invariably is an attrition in that, and there's a there's a lack of the low-hanging e-commerce B2B um, e-commerce you know marketplace um, companies that you can just kind of go, oh that looks interesting, that's Deliveroo or you know, yeah. and 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 then there's this chasm because capital needs to find things to to pour into and scale. But if you haven't found interesting things earlier in, in, in are in different kind of what we're calling scalable niches, um, then you run out of things quite quickly. And, and, and I'd love to hear your view on that and how that aligns to your view around actual product, investing in actual products. Yeah, I think that it's it's a really, I think right now, certainly in the last, you know, three to five years, it's been SaaS, 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 SaaS right? And to be to be honest, as a as a consumer, I'm fed up with subscriptions. Yeah. You know, as as a as a consumer, and I do not want another app for my phone or another this or another that. You know, I'm over it. To be honest, even you know, I have I, I have a ten year old son. He's over it, right? He's like that's you know that's so old school. What's next? And it just makes me wonder, like, when was the last unicorn product-based startup? Maybe Tesla. 
it's not, I mean, it's a lazy one to go to, but it's, it's nonetheless a product driven, you know, huge success. I, I, I don't know. But yet not still not making money. So is that a success? I don't know. Do you have any others in mind? Can you think of any sort of, you know, more UK Ireland? You know, it's, it's really hard. And just saying that, you know, it's really hard to think about it and to think of a product based company that is a unicorn. Right. And it's not necessarily, you know, tells us a great example. Like there's a lot of flaws in the Telsa model and, you know, their valuation and things, but that's not for this discussion. Think about, you know, a, a new uh, a new engine for an airplane. Yeah. Right? Supersonic or, engine that, that goes to Australia. Exactly. Yeah. Now, if you look at MedTech, MedTech's completely different, right? And I think you have to you have to exclude them because there is a lot of innovation yeah. around medical products, right? Um but you don't see those, you know, really, they're not super visible because it's in this little special sphere of, of their own domain where there's two or three companies that will buy them up and that's, that's, their, that's their business model, right? They're not going to go it alone. But I think that if you are creating a product, it's really hard to have that conversation with, someone who's you know when you're raising funds to build it and what i see is that in all and and i've seen probably 100 plus maybe two you know something between 100 150 different pitches from different businesses and startups uk and ireland and some from europe as well and none of them were a physical product and anyone, when I started asking about it, they're like, they're in the universities. Yeah. I've and got, so yeah. I, there's kind of, there seems to be this kind of assumption that you have to be in a university or, you know, working with, partnered with a university to get a special funding to be able to prototype your product to then grow or be or be sold as a university spin out and i just i'm i'm missing this this interim where is it yeah i know a founder who's on that journey it's a very very difficult one he's only because he's tenacious um that he's finally get making progress after three four years of people sort of not not really want to bat product one thing i would say is um is worth looking at if you don't uh, haven't already and he's been on the podcast is uh, francesco's um silicon roundabout which is folk he calls it deep tech but it's the leading community of deep tech in yeah. europe and he's about to launch a fund silicon roundabout ventures for yeah. deep tech and he when he talks you can listen to him he he's, he wants to back what you're talking about he doesn't necessarily call it product but he wants deep problems that are very hard to solve longer innovation curves, all of that kind of stuff, which invariably yeah. will take in product because that's the, and I think one of the reasons people don't like product is it's just much harder. It's much, much harder to, 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 to develop products. And, and let's, let's be honest, you know, the startup world, they want to heal you up as something bright, something sexy, something fun. And no one wants to hear about a new way of processing 
um, search. I know the person. We talked about that. You've got one of somebody who's doing that, and I know someone who's doing that sewage in a different. They're processing sewage for disease. Yes. So they, yeah. Yeah. Untap. Um, and it's and that's that's a really that's a really really good solution. But you know, let's call a spade a spade. It's unlikely they're going to get the same amount of funding as a really sparkly, sexy SaaS company. It's crazy. It's crazy. Let, let, let's keep let's keep going. Otherwise, we can stay on this for it. So the um, uh, number three, you touched on it. This is my 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 whole. I've, I think it was my starting point that you know founders. Very few founders like their pitch deck. Yet they spend loads of time on it. You'd never design it today to tell a compelling story around a founder or where they're trying to go. It's okay as a strategic conceptual tool, sort of. It's a kind of an engineering tool and then the irony is is that they invariably have like seven eight different pitch decks because people are telling them different things each time everybody's every investor's got different feedback and then even if they do use it to close the investment and uh carl who was on episode one he told a great story so i'm really proud of my pitch deck i really like it we've worked so hard on it and i said but carl once you've got your investment and like he's a he's an amazing founder like did you ever refer to it or use it again and he was like no, <laughs> like, and, he'd been, and he'd been really successful with it. I was like, I really like what we our pitch deck is great. And like, so, like, do you think it's a legacy tool? Is it's a kind of like yes, no favorite story? Like, like it's, it's it's kind of it's a leading question. But do you think it is, or do you think it still has a place? No, I think when you are, if you are seed stage or pre-seed, no, absolutely right. not. Because what are you, you are, because they, they don't have a clue even how to present it and they should be focusing on the business and not focusing on creating a pitch deck, which is probably going to take them a month, six months to, to, to make. So I think if you're seed or pre-seed, absolutely not, because what am I investing in? I'm investing in the founder or co-founder with their idea. Yeah. I think when you get later on, I think you need a summary. Now, whether that is a one-pager, I am a big fan of the one-pager. Me too, yeah. And, and to be honest, I make 90% of any of my decisions on a one-pager. It has an executive summary. It tells me a little bit about the, the, the people, but to be honest, I'm going to stalk them on LinkedIn anyway. And... It tells me a little bit of financials. And to be honest, if I want to know more, I'm going to meet them. Yeah. How so, much is then based on that meeting or that call when you're talking yeah. to them? Like that first half an hour, how much of your decision is then based on that first half an hour? I probably probably a good 80%. Yeah. And then it's just down to 80, yeah, 80%. And then it's down to what's going to come out of any due diligence. And once I get the full due diligence, then that's going to top it up. Yeah. And is that because, going back to your, you understand your risk profile, therefore you understand the conversation you're having, you know, you're, you're going into it understanding that, that the, the, the parameters you're looking for. So when those are met, you're okay, like, cool, right, this is, I want to back this founder in this sector for solving this problem. I understand the risk. I understand sufficient in order for me to make a decision and that's, I don't need more than that in the early stage. Would that be kind of the process? Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, I spend zero time on uh, financials. Yeah. 
because they're just made up numbers. They mean nothing. Yeah. Um, and I re- I do my own research around market. And to be up when I say I do my own research around it, a lot of the time you have a good idea yourself. You know, yeah. you're reading the newspapers, you're reading yeah. articles and things. You have a good idea whether there is a market for that product or this is a problem. And it's more on is this a problem? Can they clearly articulate the problem? Yeah. And if they can, then I already know there's a market for it. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a very, very, very good way of saying it. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Mo- moving on to the next one. So this is something that's come up recently in the third series about this. Uh, you mentioned syndicates before um, and founder and solo-driven capital is gaining traction. So it's kind of like this migration from the traditional VC to much more agile capital, which is founder-driven you know, people like yourself that sit, sat on both sides, understand the risk, can make quicker decisions. You've got solo capitalists, some, you know, in, in the, uh, there's not many over here, but like in the US who are sitting on 30, 40 million dollars uh, of their own funding, or they can deploy that on their own, under their own instinct. Do you, because th- to me, this is critical. This community of venture is critical to the evolution. Would you agree with that? And do you see this, you know, in your own world, you know, as an angel investor? I think yes, I think it is because my, from my experience, if you're talking to VCs, unless your ask is more than 500K, they probably won't even talk to you. Yeah. Right? And 500K is low end for them. Yeah. And so if you're pre-seed and you're, you, all you want is 120K, where are you going to get it? Yeah, it's it's true. You're, you're going to waste your time. Yeah, you know, you can you can talk to all the VCs, but you're not even in their ballpark. So actually, you're just wasting your time. So you really, and that's just understanding the the way that the funding works. And so I definitely think that there, this is where the angels really sit, and the private um, family funds. And things like this that's where they sit as syndicates that can go in and give you that 100 300k and it solves your problem and there you go yeah and yeah i i, I agree i and i think it's that group of people the good angels it, it comes up that there are someone called them devils which i don't think is the right inversion but you know, do you know what I mean? but there are bad angels floating about that have put three grand in you know some business and therefore call themselves an angel and they cause a lot of bad faith and and yeah. and, and they slow things down and they can cause a lot of damage to yeah. timing and well-being and all those kinds of things but good angels who have a point of view understand the risk they're willing to take have their own capital can act in syndicates to increase that i think have to be the future in the pre-seed seed space i mean that's you know and then when you when you had tools like odin and um verban that enable syndicates to be formed really quickly with all the regular regular uh, regular issues immediately solved you know as plat- you, know, you just literally go to them as a platform and 10 of you can suddenly act as one syndicate all of that to me is what we're going to need so in the pre-CC space. Yep. Because, uh, and I think that, you know, in addition to that, and something that I think is missing off that is crowdfunding. Yeah, yes, I, it, it's kind of deliberate because I think it's slightly different. But yes, it, crowdfunding Kickstarter has obviously created fluidity and agility for certain. Weirdly, um, Alison, I think for products, 
it's that those most models are it really is. good the founder that i was talking about before is literally doing he's just about to close his crowdfunding round after not getting hardly any love or traction from vcs and he's yep. closed it i think he's even closed it before he's even announced it yep. um and, and so i think for product driven things particularly crowdfunding is really good because yep. you can demonstrate the product the person behind it there's a need so yeah, I, th I think that, I think that's super interesting actually. That that, that that's that's where that yeah that 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 allocation of capital has really helped in that area. Um, okay, moving to moving on. Um, so this is about leveling engagement um, is now value added asset. And I say again, the the bad faith that we're talking about is where I think people leverage asymmetry. Asymmetry. So the investor sort of like thinks that they are way above with all the knowledge, with all the power, with all the capital and the kind of founders below them and lucky to talk to them and the suggestion is actually that it's really old school to go to your son like you know you know that, that's not how people communicate you know that's not how anyone wants to do anything anymore they want to talk almost like with you and your co-founder you want to talk directly to someone clearly to someone and level that out now some people don't agree with that because they like the asymmetry because it's really good for deal flow and their funnel what what do you think what's your experience of that is that something that you like when you talk to a founder that you're going to engage with do you like to kind of keep it on the level um in that communication look i think there's 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 a level of respect what they get is you know i'm investing and i have knowledge that they then can access if they need it um i'm not going to let them do something stupid in the business or something crazy um, because I have an investment in that. So there's a level of respect and understanding there. Now, whether that is, I'm, I'm never going to tell them what to do. It's not my business. I no. have a vested interest in their business, but ultimately if I don't like it, I can leave, right? And I think that when you're talking to definitely our experience with talking to VCs and, um, and institutional money was really, you know, it was very, very negative. It's who are you? Why do you think we would invest in you? It was very much, we're very special. You're just looking for some money. Yeah. And, you know, it's really, it's quite, it's, that's, it's hard for founders, you know, to, because when you find someone to invest in, there should be a, a level of respect, a level of trust. Both should be bringing things to the table. The, the founder is interviewing the investor just as much as the investor is interviewing right. the founder. And you have to be able to work together or have a mutual understanding that I'm investing money and I'm not going to even look at your business, just deliver on your milestones and that's it. I won't get involved. But those things have to be agreed upfront. And I think it is, it's a, it's a conversation on what your relationship wants to be. It might be that you want that asymmetric because that's what your, that's what your profile needs. But it may be that it's a level of respect and it's more give and take and conversational. You need, as a founder, you need to know what you want and how you work and have that awareness before you even start looking for money. Yeah, I think you can look at it and, you know, it, it came up in, uh, in Carl's first episode, like, you know, you've got to own your position as yeah. a founder. 
I own it. It doesn't matter what that is, but you've got to own it and understand the value of your position and understand that capital only works if it can attract excep exceptional opportunities. Yes. If you have held your uh, position in the right way and presented it in the right way at the right stage, then you are valuable. And that, that like you said, there may be so much you need to learn and, the, and a really good angel or syndicate will give you a, so many more capacities and reach and you know insight than, and, and, but, but you own your position. I think that's what the leveling is, is that the founder owns their position rather than thinking, oh, I'm, it's, it's all, me, all me sort of having to sort of almost beg, isn't it? Oh, if you could spend some time with me, that would be amazing. Like that, that style of communication has gone. And this, this segues into the next one, which is this, uh, that open communication is becoming a currency. So the the image on the switch deck is this image that um, came up towards some founders that um, somebody said they would much rather a fast no than a slow yes, right? That that that, that, that a fast no is valuable. Someone an, an investor saying to a founder or a founder to investor, this isn't right for me, and this is why, is incredibly valuable. Um, and too many times in the, in this conversation is these slow sort of ongoing creeping things that take months, and those are really really costly. And so this, they're, they're actually investors and founders, but particularly investors that can be really open and really, um, and, we, and, and, and several VCs have come up with, that have really transparent um, kind of like uh, gradations of, in, of engagement. So they like, here's this thing, and it's almost like spend 30 seconds on this, and that enables us to do this. And then we do this, and then it's 20 minutes on the, that, that kind of com communication is a currency. Do yeah. you think that's the case? I think it very much depends who you're talking to. Okay. Um, and I think one of the biggest gripes that we had when we were when we were searching and we were raising funds was you might no one wanted to ever tell you no. And if they did tell you no, it was on an email because they would never say no to your face. Yeah, yeah that's right. And they never give feedback. Yeah. I think only only one instance I can remember we actually got feedback and that was because we asked for it. And even then, they, you know, no one will tell you that, you know, it, no one told us our pitch was useless. No one told us when it clearly was. Um, no one told us our financials were bonkers. <laughs> no one told us they weren't by the way, but it's as an example, you yeah, know, no one told us that we had, you know, the market size wrong or anything like that. It was almost, you know, people are afraid of having these tough conversations, but it's these honest conversations done in a safe space with support, which can really benefit the founder to really one, build a relationship with you, but two, improve their product so that maybe now's not the time but maybe it will be in the future and that is the worst answer you can ever get from a vc it's just not now that, yeah. you know, that's if, that's the easy one you know but if it's given with precision and feedback the feedback you say and it's like look for this quarter if you can at the beginning of next quarter have shown these three four things this totally. is this isn't excuse my French bullshit. We're yeah. we this is real. This is how we we are interested in your sector. We've backed other founders in your sector. We need to see these things. Come back and present to us 
yeah in in three months and this yeah. is how and this here's you know here's someone you could talk to about achieving that that we think is really that that's the that's that's what i'm talking about that communication yeah. is totally. what needs to happen yeah. um and i think just just one point on your slow i think a lot of the slow that i have seen comes around the due diligence process yeah and i think that and i've given this feedback to several people already Everybody, all the founders are pushed into all these accelerators, right? And that's great. It builds a team, how to build a team, how to do this, X, Y, Z. No one ever covers the due diligence process or very, very few. So true. You're so right. I've never heard anyone say that, but it's true. Yeah. Why? How do you, they tell you you need a data room. What the hell is a data room? You know, like 90% of people don't know. So what should be in it? What can they have prepared beforehand so that when they get that conversation, give me access to the data room, they don't just, you know, share their entire Dropbox folder, you know, with editable access, right? Because they don't have a clue. And a lot of the times it's the pulling together of that information which delays the slow yes. You're totally right. You're totally right. There's a massive gap in founder tech for that DD. Maybe if anyone's listening to this, please reach (laughs) out if you've got that solution because you're totally right. It's never never addressed. Right, I'm I'm cognizant of our time. So I'm going to ask number seven in a different way. When you're in front of that founder after that one pager, what's the one... It's call it subsurface cues. It's a term that someone can. What's the one thing that you're looking for? There's nothing to do with the product, nothing to do with it. In that founder, in that moment, that gives you a cue that this is someone that you should take seriously and look at, you know, evaluating properly. Passion level. When they talk about it, do they smile? Do their eyes light up? If they, if it doesn't, no. Because to be honest, you, no matter how tired you are. If you truly believe in your business and you're, you get excited about it and that's infectious. And if you don't get excited, I, I'm not interested. Yeah, it's, 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 it, I mean, it's like the age, that's an age old thing, isn't it? In anything, when you figure if you could sense it in someone when they are embodying it, you know, when they are not obsessed with it, I don't think obsession is good. I mean, it's kind of like this (laughs) hypermanic kind of telling you that's not healthy. And we've, I think a lot has been done to kind of get rid of that kind of stereotype of a founder of, you know, that really wired and hasn't slept. You know, there's a lot more work about well-being, but I I totally agree. Um, the other thing, sorry. No, no problem. Uh, I am a stickler for what they're wearing. <laughs> yeah, how you turn up is important, right? Right. If you turn up like an old Sambo in your sliders and socks and a three-day-old T-shirt, yeah, jog on. Yeah, to- to- totally jog on. Yeah. And, and turn and up I on time expect, as well. Yeah, I don't expect a shirt and tie. No. You know, or anything, or a suit. You know that I, I'm not I'm not asking that. Yeah. But smart, not slob. Yeah, and on time. Oh, totally. Turn up on time. Turn up a yeah. bit early. Be on yes. time. Like it's like it sounds like a school now. Um, <laughs> right. You've mentioned you've kind of covered it in like due diligence, but the, like we, you know, founder tech is emerging. There's lots of these tools. Do you have a favorite piece of founder tech that you've used that made, has made you go, ooh, now that made my life a lot easier? 
Um, I now there is Pitch It, which is um in an MVP stage. And you can't use it right now because they're taking expressions of interest. But I was in the original beta round right. where people can assess, it, you know, investors can review pitches, pitch decks, financials, and get them investor ready. Okay. And I thought that that was very interesting. Yeah, that's definitely um, in the space. Yeah. I think that, you know, other than that, it's a really new space. I think. Anyone that can match, um, and I'm going to plug Plandal here. Yep. Anyone who can match investors that have a focus with those startups is definitely um, something that I find very, very interesting. Uh, agreed. We, we can have an offline conversation about that because that's what Propelli is doing with Black Box. So we're literally doing that. But that's we can do that after the episode. Um, I'll share a bit more. The, the the last couple of slides, which kind of lead to that, I guess, is like this, 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 we're getting to the point where I think if we plug all of these things in, once they're all plugged in, they start working and people start using them, um, you get a new ecosystem, you get like a new grid, basically, where and, yeah. and one of the features of that grid, I think, is that and it elevates the good faith actors on both sides, it's in their interest, is it automates almost all the low level boilerplate things that are replicable, they don't really add much value to the process and it elevates all the things we've been talking about, which are all of that, you know, the human, the intuitive, the, the, the deep insight, all of this kind of stuff, founders that have been on a journey. Do, uh, so that to me is like what's so exciting about this, that, that these things are starting to emerge. I mean, you just, um, you just talked about a couple there. Once these things start talking to each other and all that data is being shared through APIs, to me, that's the new ecosystem. And then you're either on that grid or you're not. Do, do, yeah. do you? Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, that just seems like where this is all going, where in two years we'll be sitting having a conversation, hopefully, and going, well, that was obvious. Do you know what I mean? Like, of course it would be like that. Like, just a bit like with Uber, like, that's obvious. Of course you would call a car and it would come to you. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it, or of course you can go on Airbnb and find a home wherever you want. And like any, that's, I mean, like, why wouldn't you do that? So, yeah, um, the last one is around founder fit, the founder market fit. That is what that box is bringing is like the founder market fit piece to founder tech um i personally think in the preceding seed space really founder market fit has been massively underplayed even if you google it you don't come up with much you know we come up a little bit it, it's not a term why do you think that term is so underused it's it's it was there when i've you know I, i've made no claims that I, in any way kind of like um created it it's there as a term and it's the obvious counterpart um balance or cousin to product market fit why do you think it's just not used as a, as a term around the founder? Look, I think that it the right now it's, the system is broken. I think it's got so obsessed with certain aspects that others have been, you know, just almost ignored. And founder market fit is one of them. You know, we are spending so much time reviewing these useless pitch decks and things that contain information which the business is not ready to generate and it's just a stab in the dark that really we should be the pitch deck should be all about the founder how does that founder what's the relationship between that founder and the market how did that relationship help them to identify a problem and come up with this idea you yeah. know 
that's the conversation that you should be having a preceding seat. But we've got obsessed with we need even a pre-seed and seed. Okay, I want a 10x return on my investment. Dude, they're not even going to raise any cash for like the next five years. You know, good luck with that. So I think that it's got skewed. And I think that the amount of, you know, and I, I, I think as well, the economic environment right now where COVID, everyone was sitting at home. I've got an idea has also driven this to an extent and government funding around startups has driven people to think of, okay, well, I could do that. I could do that. I could do that. And yeah, maybe they can do that, but it's not focusing on the core because if you if your founder doesn't live, breathe, eat, sleep this market, you're going to be one of those nine that fail. Particularly now we've got so much more volume of startups, you know, even 10, 15 years, there's just less to yep. find the exceptional ones. It has to be, you have to leverage founder market fit because that's the key differentiator. It's so easy to create tech these days, no code, low code, all of that kind yep. of stuff. That's no longer the differentiator. It's so hard to find an e-commerce B2P winner, you know, like it, it's the, 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 so you, what have you got? You've got in the early stages, as, as you know, the whole kind of conversations orientated around this. In a way, we can take the whole art back to where you started, that when your co-founder was basically saying, you've got founder market fit with me, we can solve this problem together, to, you know, as co-founders. That's all that you've really got. And it's just, I think it's so indicative of the mindset of venture that it doesn't embrace that term because it's le- lying there, ready to pick up and use. And yeah. it's just, it's hardly ever mentioned at all and yet it's so it's it's not a confrontational term it's immediately you immediately understand what it means so it's it's indicative that that doesn't kind of flow through the system but hopefully we're going to change that so look amazing amazing to walk through this with you and kind of see the through line of your thinking and you know that journey from you i can totally understand i think your perspective as an investor from the conversation is there anything that you would like to share just in terms of i done or anything else you know that you're that you as a shout out to the audience and how they can get in contact with you i'll put everything in the show notes as well but anything you'd like to highlight a couple of minutes you know that just to kind of focus on what you're doing or any you know investment that you're looking for or team members or anything like that that's useful so i think that um from a founder's perspective the main, you know, start as you mean to grow on, start with growth in mind. And every founder is going to say, oh, but I, you know, oh, but I do. Yeah, show it. Show me your strategy. You know, show me where you want to go. Show me clear milestones of how you're going to do it, how you're going to grow this business, how you're going to add staff, where are they going to be, what tasks are they going to do, how are they going to access your market? Because And that's going to evolve. It doesn't need to be static. It shouldn't be static. But that's really what Aiden focuses on is, you know, what are your processes for growth? What is your strategy for growth? And you're going to need that once you grow to a certain size. But if you start now when you're a young pre-seed, seed startup, it's going to be a lot easier because you're modifying and developing rather than creating because you've enough on your plate and everything that's in your head at pre-seed seed seed stage needs to be on a page 
because as you grow the team and grow your business, you will not have the bandwidth to micromanage all of that. You need to translate that into an action plan and strategy for the startup, 100%. And any founder listening to that, how can they, and they're thinking, and that's really interesting, how can they, what's the first conversation with you to start to explore that with you? It's, you know, where do you want to go? But how do they, in more practical terms, do they go to the website? Do they email so, you? Yeah, you can go to iden.ie, I-D-U-N-N.ie, or um, ping me a message on LinkedIn. Um, we're also on Twitter with Iden Consult. Um, we're pretty easy to find. Um, I work UK and Ireland. So quite, you know, lot, lots, lots of opportunity. But I think that there's, there's a lot of opportunity within the space, even now, I think there's still a lot of opportunity within the ecosystem, but you have to be driven and in the right place, in the right mindset to grab it, to be able to develop and move your business to the next level. And that comes down to strong foundations. And when you want to recruit a co-founder, pitch to them and put a picture of them on slide three. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much, Alison, for the uh, for this for being part of this episode and like sharing your experience and your perspective. Um, once again, like you, I think you've really challenged some of the concepts and like created new insight into into some of them that, that just haven't come up before. So I really appreciate sort of you know contributing to this conversation. It's been a pleasure, and you know it's a topic I love to talk about. So I'll get off my soapbox now. And uh, thanks a lot for, for, for putting up with me. Been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much.